We're going to have some fun this morning because I believe when God's people are together doing God's things, there shouldn't be anything funner in the world. Uh, I think the kids agree because I just heard some screaming and yelling over there. And uh, I know we're in college football country here, and uh, we're getting close to the time of year where uh, the football season is starting up, and, and you get all these people in a stadium, and they yell and scream and cheer. So um, they, they, whether their football team does well or not, they do that. And I think we've got something more than anybody else on this planet to celebrate and to be psyched up about. Um, and that's uh, that we have an opportunity to have a real and personal relationship with the creator of the world. That's just a fantastic and amazing thing. So I wanted to remind you of that this morning. Um, consider this. God's promise to you when you put your faith and your trust in him is that his spirit, he himself, comes to live inside of you. Now think of this power, the power that spoke this world into existence. The power that said, let there be light, and there was light. The power that said, let there be animals in creation, and it was there. That same power that also raised Jesus from the dead and said, death, you have no power over me. That exact same power lives in each and every one of us who call on the name of Jesus. I think that's something to be pretty pumped up about. So now that I've reminded you, I'm not going to tolerate any boredom in here or any sleeping, uh, but I do want to have some fun to start out with. You should have received uh, or are in the process of receiving a piece of paper and a writing utensil. We're going to play a game. Uh, who likes games? For those of you not raising your hand, you've got to fake it. I'm watching you. The great thing about being up here is I see every one of you. Uh, we're going to have a game, and like I tell my kids, if you don't want to have fun, this is forced family fun time. Okay? Um, and it's timed. So I am going to be timing you, uh, and in that time, you know, I need you to be quick thinking. So we're going to get it, get you going right away this morning. I got my timer ready to go here. So on your piece of paper, the first thing that I want you to do, and right as soon as I say what I want you to do, if you're cheating, it might be behind me. You get a, you get grace and a head start. But I want you to write down. The five sermons that have most that you've listened to in your life that have most drawn you to Jesus. Write down the five sermons that you have heard in your life that have most drawn you to Jesus. Ready? Go. We need like Jeopardy theme music here. There you go. It's amazing how long 60 seconds actually is. Okay, we're halfway there. Five sermons you have heard in your lifetime that have most drawn you closer to Jesus. Five, four, three, two, one, stop. All right. We're going to do this again, except for this time, I want you to write down the five experiences, five of your life experiences that have most 
drawn you closer to Jesus? 60 seconds. Ready? Go. Five experiences that have drawn you closer to Jesus. Your top five. Halfway there. Five, four, three. Two, one, stop. All right, we're going to do this one last time. And we'll see if my hypothesis comes true. Didn't realize you were going to be my lab rats this morning, did you? Okay, in the last 60 seconds, what I want you to do is write down the five people in your life who have most drawn you closer to Jesus. Ready? Go. The five people who have drawn you closest to Jesus in your life. Five, four, three, two, one, stop. All right. Now, if you weren't a killjoy and you actually played that game with me, I know I've watched some of you guys were not playing the game. Uh, shame on you. God sees everything, and today so do I. Um, but let me ask you a couple questions on that. Which one of those three lists, the five sermons, the five experiences, or the five people, which one of those was the easiest to write? People. Which one was the hardest to write? Yes. Yes. I have read some statistics that make preaching pretty darn discouraging. Because the statistics say, when you walk out of here today, within five minutes of walking out the door, you won't remember 90% of what I said. You probably won't remember 95% of what I said. Um, you'll probably remember I was incredibly handsome, funny, intelligent, and especially humble. But you won't remember most of the content that I share with you. But the point of that game, the point of that exercise is to reveal a very important truth to you that is going to be the theme and the thread of what I want to share with you this morning. And it's this. If you take nothing of, you know, the 95% of what you forget, remember this, that you and I were created by God as highly relational beings. 
who are meant to live life on life, life in community, and life on mission. That exercise, that game, very clearly shows that that is true. So I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap. Yes, men do follow maps, contrary to what some of you might think. And, and I want to take a, give you a little roadmap of where I'm going to go with you today. And the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at life rhythms. We, the, the, the goal and the purpose of what I share with you today, I want you to develop healthy, missional life rhythms. So in order to do that, first we're going to look at the life of Jesus. And Jesus had five environments or five different contexts that he lived out his life and his ministry. So first we're going to look at Jesus' life rhythms. Then we're going to look at the life rhythms of the early church. And by early church, I don't mean the 830 service. I mean the book of Acts early church, the first Christians. Uh, and then we're going to bring it home by, by helping. I'm going to give you uh, a few things that you can take out of here and hang your hat on for how you yourself can develop some healthy life rhythms. Um, so let's dig in. We're going to look at Jesus' life rhythms. And I love reading through the Gospels. I love answering three main questions when I look into the Gospels. It's who was Jesus, what did he do, and why does it matter? If you read through the Gospels and you just ask those three questions on every single page and, and, and then live out what you discover by answering those three questions, uh, you will turn the world upside down. As you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus lived out his life in, in five different environments or, or contexts, spaces, if you will. Um, and, you know, as I get in, I want to give credit to some, some scholars and teachers that I'm, I'm drawing from their work. So back in the 60s, there was a guy named Edward T. Hall. He's a sociologist, uh, and he wrote a book where he coined a term uh, proxemetics, uh, which relates to proximity closeness. Uh, and then in uh, 2003, a guy named Joe Myers wrote a book called Search to Belong, where he took that sociological information and started to apply it to the church. And then finally, a couple guys named Alex Absalom and Bobby Harrington um, did some work where they really tried to give people um, a, a roadmap or a framework to follow. So a lot of what I'm sharing with you today comes from their work and just want to give them credit from the, from the get-go. Uh, and if you're curious to learn more, I can point you to some of their work. Um, you know, the most practical would be Alex and Bobby's book. If you want to get a little more egghead, um, you'll read Joe's book. If you want to go full-time nerd, then go back and read Ed, Edward Hall. Um, so I want to share with you just a, a brief overview and just comment briefly on each of the five environments that we see Jesus operating in. Uh, we look to Jesus as, as God and King, and that he is. We look to him as worthy of worship, and he surely is. Jesus was also a brilliant strategist. It's not just what he did that is, is brilliant, but how he did it. And I think that's one of the most overlooked things when we read the scriptures, how he actually engaged people, how he structured his ministry is hardly ever looked at. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to change that. So first we see Jesus in the crowds. 
a lot of his life and ministry was lived out uh, before huge crowds of people. Some of, the, uh, some of the stories that you might recall where this is the case is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, also the feeding of the 5,000, and then there's the parable of the seed and the sower. And I'm going to go to that real quick. Uh, Mark chapter 4. And I'm not going to go through that whole thing, but I just want to, I want you to see it so you can tell that I'm not making this up. Uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he began to teach them a series of parables. So uh, if you can get it in your mind's eye that here's Jesus and the disciples walking through the town. Everybody wants a piece of him, and, and he's got some things to say. In fact, so many things to say the crowd is, is coming in on him. He gets out in a boat, pushes out into the water a little bit. And I've actually seen the pictures of where this actually took place in Capernaum. And there, as you look out, there was a hillside that kind of curved in that bay. And then he was in his boat out. So it was this natural amphitheater so that when he spoke, both the water and the landscape would reflect his voice. Um, but the point of that is large crowds you go throughout and you see Jesus in that all the time. So some of these proxematics, some of this nerd stuff uh, that goes along with that in, in the crowds, it's typically a group of 100 plus, larger group. Um, the focus of the people in this discipleship environment is on an outside resource. In the, in the passage that I, I shared with you there, it's all this crowd, and the focus is on Jesus. He's outside of them. He's, he's pretty far away from him. The proximity of Jesus to the people, and it's similar to, to here today, is, is 12 feet or more. Um, none of you is, is real close. I'm, I'm not in danger of having you invade my personal space. There's good distance between us. Uh, the environment in, in this uh, story of Jesus correlates with this gathering right here, the Sunday morning service. Um, and there are reasonable outcomes that we can expect from this gathering, and there are outcomes that maybe we would like to see happen in this gathering, but quite simply will never happen just because of the group dynamics, just because of how this functions. There's not going to be a lot of dialogue. There's not going to be a lot of depth relationally here. Um, you're just going to have to take my word for it that I'm brilliant and hilarious. If you want to really know that, you got to experience me like, like uh, Aaron does. He'll tell you the truth. It's absolutely true. I'm the humblest guy he's ever met. But you, you have to take my word for it because there's not a lot of personal interaction. So this is good because some of the reasonable outcomes that we can expect here is, is inspiration, and what Alex Absalman calls movementum. It's a combination of movement. We come together so we can teach and inspire and rally the troops. And it's, it's movement and momentum together. So you stuff those two words together. It's movementum because we want to become a disciple-making movement. And we want to continually getting better and better. So that can happen here. And then, of course, there's, there's preaching. Not much dialogue. Not much sharing. So inspiration, movementum, and preaching. You can expect that every week here. And the inspiration comes either from me and what I share with you or, or Jeff and everyone else who is up here leading 
just fantastic uh, music in leading us to the throne of Jesus. So we should, be, we should leave these gatherings inspired and empowered to live more like Jesus. Now, I'm not going to hammer too much on this, but I, will, I do have to mention that if this is the only involvement you have in church, uh, you are going to be frustrated. You are going to be uh, feeling like you're lacking something. And what happens when we don't recognize, what I'm going to say is all five of these environments that Jesus engaged in, there's a reason why he did it. Because some of these environments are very good at some things and very poor at others. So trying to make one Sunday morning gathering do everything, it's impossible. So if this is the only involvement you have at Riverwood, it's going to be good, but it's going to be severely limited, and it's going to keep you from living out in the fullness of all that Jesus calls us to do and be. So I want to move to the next environment. I, I tempted to preach on every single one of these. Uh, it would be a good sermon series. If I ever get invited back again, maybe I'll do that. But uh, the next one that I want to point out is Jesus in the 72. Uh, this is social space. So the first one, the crowds, that's public space. That is, is in the hundreds of people. It's like limited, usually 100 or more. Social space is 20 to 70 people. Jesus, uh, as, as people responded to Jesus' life and message, they got a little bit closer to him. Uh, they had a little bit more interaction with him, and they gathered in different social groups. So in the scriptures, you see this in uh, Jesus had parties with the, with the sinners. You were far more likely to see Jesus at a, at a neighborhood barbecue than you were at a religious service. He had these parties with sinners when, when he called Matthew. He went to Matthew's house, and all the tax collectors and the sinners were gathered. If you've read that story, you know Jesus took a lot of heat from the religious folks they said, why is your master hanging out with the sinners? Because it's the sick who need a physician, right? Uh, Zacchaeus is another example of that. Zacchaeus was a, a thief and a scoundrel and a tax collector, one of the most hated guys in, in uh, Judea, in, in Israel. And he, Jesus sees wee little Zacchaeus up in the hill, and he says, I got to go to your house today, and we got to hang out with the sinners because, again, it's the sick who need the physician. And then uh, there are the 72 that are sent out. And I want to take you to Luke chapter 10 there. One of the hardest parts of preaching for me is not going down rabbit trails because all of this is so darn good. Um, so Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says, And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So that you, you get the, the uh, collision of two groups here. You got the two by twos, but the wider group is the 72. And so they had this very specific purpose. They went out on mission uh, with Jesus. So the size, again, some of these statistics, the size of the group is 20 to 70 people. The focus of the people in this discipleship environment is on sharing snapshots of life. You know, if 20 or 30 of us were to go out to, to lunch afterwards and hang out together, uh, I, can, I can talk to 20 or 30 people at a party, but it's just going to be these snapshots. You're not going to get the full story of my life. So you can learn some things about me, um, 
and I can learn some things about you, but it's there where we can start to, to share some things about ourselves and get to know each other. Um, the space is typically 4 to 12 feet in that kind of a gathering um, when, you're, when you're in that larger group. And this environment in Jesus' discipleship correlates to today, uh, a modern contemporary would be uh, what is known as missional communities. It's kind of like a small group, but it's different. Uh, I'll talk more about small groups next. But uh, missional community is typically about 20 to 40 people. When you gather there, you just share snapshots of life. You do a lot of barbecues. You do a lot of service stuff together. You really don't do Bible studies in that context. Those groups in a ministry setting are made up of, of your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and the people you'd love to reach for Christ, but they're not ready to come and attend this service here. Um, so that's, that's another strategy that I'll unpack for you at another time. Uh, reasonable expectations and outcomes in this discipleship environment are community, sense of belonging, um, in that kind of a group. I don't have to agree with everything you agree with and believe everything you believe to be a part of that group. Uh, second thing is, is mission. We have our friends, we have our neighbors, our coworkers, everybody together, so together we can participate in mission there. And then it's practice. Um, how many of you have been going to church for a while? Um, you have probably heard the Great Commission, and you can probably recite it for me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, right? And so it wouldn't be news to you uh, to hear that, that Jesus commands each and every one of us to participate in that. Um, and the last thing that you need is someone up on stage guilting you into doing that. What you need is, is leaders who will create opportunities and environments for you to practice that. And so a missional community is a great place to, to uh, have community, mission, and practice. Social space allows us to make and multiply disciples among those who will not come to a Sunday gathering and will enable Christians to live out their gifting and their calling in unique ways, ways that might not fit within a Sunday service type opportunity. The third one that I want to share with you is Jesus in the 12. This is personal space. It's four to 12 people. Uh, and this is probably of all the environments that Jesus engaged in discipleship in, this is probably the most well-known. Uh, Jesus and his, and his 12 guys. And you, I mean, really the whole Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are made up of primarily his time with those 12 guys and the way that they engage the in other environments together. Some of the stories that you see is, is uh, John 13, the washing, uh, Jesus washing their feet, uh, and the whole what's known as the farewell discourse, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, where he prays, 18, where he dies, and then he rises. Uh, you got the story in Matthew 8, the calming, they're out in the boat, and uh, the storm's going crazy, and they're all freaking out, and Jesus is sleeping. And he's like, guys, what are you sweating it for? Storm, be quiet. Shh, I'm trying to sleep here. Um, and then Mark chapter 8, which I call this the great confession, where Jesus asks his guys, he says, hey, what, who do people say that I am? You're this, you're this, you're this. And then Peter unleashes that great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the size of this environment is 4 to 12 people. 
and the focus is on disclosing private information. Remember Jesus, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but along in that discourse he said, man, you're no longer, you know, you're not, I'm, it's not master-servant relationship, you're my friends. You're my friends because I've made known to you my plans. You know me, you know my father, you know what I'm supposed to do. Those 12 guys knew Jesus closer than anyone else on earth, even closer than his own mama um, as, they, as they lived and ministered together. Proximity in this group is 18 inches to 4 feet. So you're in each other's personal space in a group of that. Uh, contemporary, uh, contemporary environment like that would be growth groups, small groups. Uh, and it's the most emulated discipleship environment outside of the crowds that we see in Jesus' ministry is the small groups. Reasonable outcomes in, of discipleship in the small group environment are closeness, support, and challenge. Uh, and that can happen there because the relationships deepen. Uh, there's, there's more depth there so you can get close. You know what people are going through so they, you can support each other. And you also know each other and your shortcomings so that, and you have the relational credibility to challenge. Uh, I had a really good friend over. We met in seminary um, way back in the early 2000s. And he and his family came over and spent the day with us yesterday. And I love hanging out with Kirk because Kirk loves me. Kirk knows me really well. And if I'm being a jerk, Kirk will tell me I'm being a jerk. Uh, or if I need to stop whining, Kirk will tell me to stop whining. Kirk can do that because we've got relational credibility. Um, I can't say some of those things to you because I don't have relational credibility with you. Um, you can't say some of those things to me because we just don't have that closeness. I mean, I guess you could say it, but the impact is going to be minimal to mostly negative if you don't have the relationships. But personal space discipleship allows people to cultivate deep and meaningful relationships. They take work. They get messy. Um, sometimes you don't like each other. Um, there are times, I've been married, how long have I been married now? 16 years this year. And uh, there are times where, you know, my wife and I, we don't necessarily like certain things about each other, but we're the only ones in the world who know that about each other because of how well we know each other. And so as you deepen in your friendship and your relationship, the reason why they're hard uh, is because it, it requires a lot more grace. The more you know somebody, uh, you've, you've got to be more gracious. They take work. But it's in that private space. As you look at, at Jesus in those 12 what they were able to do was absolutely remarkable, but, but he couldn't have used those guys in the way he did had he not had the depth of relationship he did with them. Um, fourth environment that Jesus operated in was Jesus and the three. These are transparent spaces of two to four people. And Jesus spent all this time with these 12, but there were three of those 12 in particular that are known as the inner circle. Uh, when, when Jesus uh, went to the Mount of Transfiguration, that is known as, he went up on the mountain. He brought Peter, James, and John with him. He said, come on up, guys. You're going to see something amazing. Um, and then he, he goes off to pray right before the crucifixion. He was with all 12, and he took Peter, James, and John again. He said, come on a little deeper into the woods with me here. You guys sit tight right here. We need to pray. 
don't go to sleep. Peter, I'm talking to you. Don't go to sleep. Wake up and pray. Um, so he spent, he, he honed that in. And those three of the 12, he had an even closer relationship with. No one else got to see that transfiguration, the most stunning thing he did on earth to reveal his glory. Um, size of this discipleship environment is two to four people. The focus is on living transparent lives where we can be vulnerable and open with each other, um, which is an, a deep relational need that every one of us has, but it's also one of the hardest things for us to engage in uh, because it takes incredible risk. If I were to be completely open in this environment, it would be uh, reckless and totally inappropriate for me to open up myself in certain ways to you. Um, but when Aaron and I are in our coaching relationship, we get pretty open and honest with each other. And a lot of things that we talk about, we would never say in this group because I trust him and he trusts me. And we've got a depth of relationship where we're open uh, and we'll say things and not I know this guy has my back. He knows I have his back, so I don't have to worry about it. How many of those relationships do you honestly have? Where you can be, where you can be completely vulnerable and open. How many do you have? I would say it's very, very few. Now, contemporary in our, in our day-to-day lives here today, what would those relationships be? It should be your marriage. Your marriage should be the most open, honest, place where you can be vulnerable with each other. Now, I'm married too, so I know that's not true, but it should be. So discipleship should be taking place between uh, a husband and a wife. God's given men the responsibility to be the pastors of their home. If you broaden that out a little bit, if you're married and you have children, then there's another discipling environment in our contemporary day-to-day I have a couple different groups that I call my inner circle groups. Uh, we call them fight clubs or ultimate adventure, depending on what expression we're in. But I meet with two or three other guys, and, and we just deepen the relationship. We do study the Bible in those environments, but we focus a lot more on living the Bible. Um, so it's in, it's in these, well, let me give you a few examples. In fact, I want to turn, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 1. I got to keep going here so you know that I'm not making it up. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. No, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the wrong verse. Okay, you can keep your spot there. I'm going to get to it. Um, But you go back. I think I referenced it, the, the let's pray, the three. Um, so the big point I want to make there is, is that the reasonable outcomes of discipleship in this environment are, are intimacy, openness, and impact. Uh, the best way to make an impact in someone's life is to have very deep, open, and trusting relationship. Uh, again, your marriage should have that. Uh, I, hope I'm my, I hope and live my life so that I'm my son and my daughter's hero. So when they think of what is a man supposed to be, I'm it. And if I'm living up to that, then I can have a huge impact. Here's the deal. In your marriage, in your family, and in your closest, deepest friendships, you're going to make an impact. There's no question about that. The question is, is it going to be a positive impact or a negative impact? 
Uh, and then there's Jesus and the one. And this is just, I'll be very brief here, Jesus and the Father. One-on-one with the Father. And you would find that Mark chapter 1, verse 35. You can see a lot of these instances, but it says there, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate, desolate place where he prayed. And the rest of the guys wake up later and like, hey, where's Jesus? Let's go find him. That happened on a regular basis where Jesus would get up, he'd be, he'd be up praying with the Father. And the big point there is everything in your life flows out of your, it's an overflow of your interaction with Jesus. Uh, so the more full of Jesus you are, the more you're going to be exp- able to extend Jesus to others. The more full of yourself you are, the more you're going to extend yourself to others, which is, is pretty sketchy. So everything Jesus did, and, and the reasonable outcomes there are intimacy, destiny, and truth. That's where you discover who you were meant. Jesus constantly said, I don't say my own words. I speak the words of him who sent me. It's not my will, Father, but your will be done. I got my opinions. I'd rather not die on this cross, but I'm going to do what you want me to do. Now, I was going to go into the life of the early church. Uh, but as I started digging into this information, I was like, no way can I unpack this. Um, and the time is already slipping away from me very fast. Uh, but I, what I do want you to do, I want to assure you that as I studied it, um, these same rhythms play themselves out in the first Christian's lives. You can literally see all five of them happening. And I think I got up... Uh, Can you flip through to the Acts uh, point number two on there? What I did is Acts is structured two ways. In verse 1-8 it says, uh, And you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So this concentric circles, boom, 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 boom. The, The expansion would go out. So that's part of the structure of Acts. The other structure of Acts is there are six different progress reports where you hear all the stories and all these things that are happening, and then there's this little summary statement, and it tells you all of what happened before it. Um, so in, in chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Then in 931, it says, So the church was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. But the word of God increased and multiplied, Verse uh, chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. If you want to be an Acts church, we should be increasing in numbers daily. I want to be an Acts church. Um, he lived there two whole years. I love how the book of Acts ends. It's Paul in prison. About half of his letters he wrote while he was in jail. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the end of the books of Acts. It doesn't say the end. It just leaves this totally open-ended statement. And church history tells us that the disciples kept being multiplied, 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 generation after generation after generation after generation after generation, And it continues to this day. And you and I are a part of that legacy. We're a part of that calling. 
We're a part of that commission. So I'm going to end with, with encouragement and an urgent plea to you. Of those five discipling environments, I believe every church needs to be active in all five of them. Okay, and it's, it's tricky to think through that, and I'm not suggesting that we have a load of things that, that you have to do all the time because I want you to have, and Aaron wants you to have, healthy life rhythms of, of work, of rest, of play, and to utilize all of that to advance the gospel. Um, the first one, Jesus and the crowds, we're doing that. You're here today. Um, the last one that I mentioned, Jesus and the one, I hope you're doing that. And let me just say, do that. <laughs> um, every single day, you have an opportunity to have a, a personal, individual encounter with the creator of the universe who knows you better than you know yourself. He is so close. He is inside you. His spirit will join to your spirit and leave no doubt that you are his child and he has a work for you in this world. Do those two things. A third thing um, that I want to encourage you on is get plugged into a growth group. That Jesus and the 12 idea. Those guys turn the world upside down. If you read the Gospels and then you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the result of three years of good training. Jesus invested the vast majority of his time in 12 people. And then the book of Acts is 30 years that changed the world. The beginning to the end of that is 30 years. So three years Jesus trains these guys, fills them with his Holy Spirit, and they spend the next 30 years turning the world upside down. If we would engage in, a, in an intentional, vibrant, powerful, small group ministry, growth group ministry, we could turn the world upside down together. Jesus did it in his day. He's done it throughout church history. All he's waiting for is a people who say, I will do it. I will gather together. Um, so three reasons why you should join a small group now, why you need to. Um, you know, let me just start with one. It's Jesus' model. And if Jesus did it and it worked for him, the easy answer is always, we should do what he does. When he said, follow me, that means do what he did, say what he says, and go where he goes. But first, closeness. This is where you're going to develop deep, authentic, godly relationships. This is where life on life, life in community, life on mission happens in relationships. Second is support. You need, who can use a little help in life? I mean, honestly, some of you don't want to admit it. Yeah, if you're pointing at someone else, it's a clear indication, buddy, that you need it more than anybody else. I told you I see everything, pal. <laughs> um, we all need support. We all need help. And sometimes in our, it's either our pride. I'm, I will confess to you, I am prideful this way. I'm used to helping people. I'm used to being the strong person. It's incredibly difficult for me to ask for help. Um, but we need to have the depth of relationships where we're so involved with each other, where, where our love and our grace and our mercy is, is able to flow through to those around us. And in small groups, that's the best place for that to happen. This is where we find love, encouragement, and the help we need to conquer the tough things of life. I don't know about you. My life is kind of tough. I'm facing some difficult things right now. Anyone else having some tough times? Or is your life just easy street? 
Because if your life is easy street, I need to talk to you afterwards. I need some of your easy street. And the third one is challenge. We need deep, authentic relationships. Raise your hand if you're perfect in this room. If you are perfectly following the will of God in your life, if you're perfectly obedient to your, to your parents, I know you probably are, but the rest of you probably are not. Um, if, you, if you're the perfect model husband or perfect model wife, then raise your hand. But if not, we need people in our lives who love us, who care about us, who want the best for us, who are willing to ask us the tough questions. Uh, I recently transitioned. I was bivocational. Now I'm full-time missionary. Um, But I recently transitioned out of my workplace. And about three months ago, I came home from work, and my wife said, Steve, I really don't like the man that that job is turning you into. I don't like the person you're becoming. You know, that was really hard to hear. And she was so gracious. You know, there was not anger in that. She just had seen some things in me. And I am so thankful that she told me. I've got other friends who, they will see things. I mean, they will challenge me. They say, Steve, I think you need to think that through because I don't think you're giving that person a fair shot. I don't think you're judging them rightly. I don't think you're seeing the situation. I think you're letting your emotion get the better of you. And I got these friends who will challenge me and say, Steve, look at this like Jesus would. Can you be forgiving? Can you be gracious? I love those people more than anybody else. Anyone can be a critic. Anyone in here got critics or people who knock you down? It happened. I mean, just watch. I was watching CNN this morning. Oh, man, I want to throw up. They had, uh, they had the governor from Ohio. This guy was just roasting Trump. And I'm not endorsing or knocking anyone down. But he was on there for like three minutes just tearing this guy to shreds. Uh, we don't, we see it all around us and we experience it personally. I don't, I don't need someone to be a critic and tear me down. What I need is someone to love me and lovingly challenge me and, and say, there's Jesus. Be like him. Be like him. So I'm going to come full circle. Remember the game that we played? Um, you're not going to remember most of what I said to you here. Remember this. You were created as a highly relational being and you need to be in community with other followers of Jesus so that you can get connected, have closeness, support, and be challenged to be more like... To be a disciple of Jesus is simply to be in pursuit of being more like him. And we were not made to do it alone. We were made to do it together. So I know I have good information, insider information, that in the weeks to come here, Aaron and and others in the church are going to be inviting you to join a growth group. I honestly cannot think of one thing, one good excuse not to do it. If Jesus wanted to change the world and saw fit to do it by selecting 12 people to do it, who's your 10 or 12? That you're gonna that you're gonna engage with to turn this town upside down, to live out who you're meant to be in Christ, to support each other, to love each other, and to experience the fullness of Christ. Because you can't do it on your own. So that's my encouragement, that's my plea, and let me just say, even stronger, do it. There really isn't a good reason. I know it's a sacrifice, I know it's a commitment, but I know it's worth it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we 
We have seen today, Lord, that, that you have made us as relational beings. You have made us to be connected with each other, to be connected with you. And God, we're so thankful that you have extended that invitation. There's no reason, there is no reason on earth, us as sinful and flawed and broken as we are, that the perfect and holy God would call us into a relationship and invite us into the, into the restoration of this broken world. God, you have made us each with, a, with significance and purpose. And I pray for each one here today that you'll help us to embrace that. doesn't matter how old or young we are. It's not based on who we are, but who you are and who you are in and through us. And God, we come together today to celebrate the most amazing event to ever take place in human history, the death and resurrection of the Lord God Almighty. God, I pray that this time ahead would not be just rote things that we do. Here we go again, taking communion. But God, that your spirit would be strong in and through us here. Holy Spirit, you are not a thing. You are a person. You are God, Holy Spirit. And we invite you. We invite you to come and reveal yourself in this time of remembrance of your great sacrifice on our behalf. We love you and we praise you in the mighty and powerful name of King Jesus, now and forever. Amen.